0: It's a joy to be with you today in the Word of God. Thank you, Raymond, for your kind invitation and for the hospitality that you've already shown me. I'm looking forward to spending the Lord's Day with you. And now let us give our attention to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to look with me at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. Later we'll look at chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. The theme that I would like you to be thinking about is the kingship of Jesus Christ. We're thinking about Jesus, our King. Perhaps you've thought about Christ's threefold office before. He is prophet, priest, and king. We're going to be thinking about that third office together, the kingship of Christ. And the passages we're going to read in the book of Revelation are the end of the story. That's Jesus revealed in all the greatness of his kingship, but the whole Bible is about the kingship of our God and in particular the kingship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So before we read God's Word this morning, let's pray again and ask for his help and blessing. Our Lord and our God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers The flowers, they fade and they fall, but your word stands, and it stands forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Hear it in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. And then in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes "...are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May He write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. I wonder if you've ever thought how often we sing about the kingship of God in general and the kingship of Jesus. In particular, by the way, we've already done it this morning. If you go back and look at the the very first hymn we sang, uh, we we sang of the kingship of God. Uh, think of some of the hymns, maybe that you know at least the first stanza of by heart. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. So the crowning of the king and the throne of the king are mentioned in the first stanza of that hymn. It's speaking about the kingship of Jesus. Or, Rejoice, the Lord is king, your lord and king adore. So the kingship of Christ is in view in the first stanza of that hymn. Or, Praise my soul, the king of heaven. There it is again. Or, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. There you go. Over and over, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Uh, when, when we sing, we are very often singing of the kingship of God in general and of Christ, our Savior, Jesus in particular. Now, why is that? Well, number one, it's because it's true. It's biblical. The Bible tells us that over and over. But number two, it's really important. That is a really important truth for the Christian life. It is a comforting truth. It's an empowering truth. Um, Over and over, Jesus' sovereign kingship is a comfort to his people. I, I'll, I'll tell you a story that I've not related uh, often, but a friend of mine is a pastor in, in Turkey. He's Turkish, and he, he pastors in the little city of Ismir, which in the Bible, that's Smyrna. So the, the city of Smyrna in the book of Revelation is still there in, in Turkey. And a, as you know, Turkey is not an easy country for Christians right now. And, and my friend, who's a pastor in this keeps a bag packed at his door ready to take with him when they come to take him to jail. Uh, you just think what it would be like to be a pastor in that setting and just you're prepared at any time to be taken off uh, to, to jail. When Before he was um, a Christian, he was a devout um, Sunni Muslim, and he used to go to the tourist sites in Istanbul. To meet Christians who were there, looking at the at the at the various sites, especially the Hagia Sophia, the Great Church of Constantinople, where uh, Chrysostom uh, preached, and uh, he used to he loved to meet Christian tourists and witness to them uh, to the truth of Islam. And on one occasion, he met this American couple, and he sort of followed them around for the day, and he was sharing. With him, the glories, with them, the glories of his tradition and such. What he didn't realize is he had met two American missionaries. And they stayed with him all day and they shared the gospel with him. And and by God's grace, he eventually came to faith in Christ and came to the United States and went to Bible college and seminary and then went back to Turkey to minister. And um, this is a pretty neat story, Raymond, because it ties into Mark Dever. Um, In the 1980s, when I was in. Edinburgh, Scotland, and Mark Dever was in Cambridge, England. On one occasion, I remember Mark coming to me, or calling me, I think, and saying, my dear friend, um, Sir Frederick Catherwood, is, um, he, he is he is the head of human rights for the European Union. And he has come to me and, and said, I, I, Mark, I need you to pray for me. I may have an opportunity opportunity to intervene for persecuted Christians in Turkey, but I don't know whether I should exercise my authority or how I should exercise my authority to do that. Well, just hold that story in the back of your mind, because I didn't know that. When, when, when Mark said that, I didn't know anything other than there were persecuted Christians in Turkey. There, when, when, when my friend became a Christian, he was one of less than 100 Christians in Turkey. Now, there are a lot more today by God's grace. But back then, not a lot of Christians in Turkey. And um, he was arrested soon after he went back. And with, along with a number of his companions, they were tortured by the police. And um, there was, a, there was a, uh, someone amongst them who was an informant to the police. And um, they were questioning each of them one by one. And they, they had the informant go first, and he renounced his faith. And that was, that was the design of the police was to make the rest of them renounce their faith. And so he renounced his faith, and then, and then Fekrit was one of the, maybe not the next, but the, but the person after him that they questioned. Basically, the, the, the deal was, renounce your faith or we'll torture you. And um, so the informant renounced his faith. He was a false, he was not a believer, and he did that to break their spirits, when Fikrit, uh came, he, he said that he became deeply aware of the presence of Christ there. And um, it, it, it took away, he, he still feared to be tortured, but he said, I was more afraid of the judgment of Christ on these persecutors than I was of the pain that I was going to endure. Isn't that an amazing thing? He, he, he was so aware of the presence of Christ with him in the, in the hour of that persecution, he was more fearful about the souls of these men that were persecuting. In fact, I think one of the things he said is, don't do this, you don't know who's in this room. Um, and as a matter of fact, they, they were, all of the believers, they were tortured for uh, a while. But Sir Frederick Catherwood heard about it and intervened for them. Mark Dever Uh, counseled with him and prayed with him, and Sir Frederick Catherwood uh, intervened on their behalf and got them out of prison. And I I didn't know that until I met my friend in Brazil uh, many years later, and he told me that story. So the only reason I tell you that very long story is believing in the kingship of Jesus, that our, our Savior is sovereign in everything, is really important for the Christian life. I hope that none of you ever face A situation where you are being asked to renounce your faith or be tortured. But all of us will face situations in our lives where we have to trust in the sovereignty of our God and whether we believe that God is really in control or not. I bet you if we went around the room, many of you could give testimony to times like that that have already happened in your lives. Most of us in the Christian life come face to face with realities where we have to either believe that Jesus is King and he's in control or not and and whether you do and whether you don't really matters to how how you live your life. And so this is a this is an important doctrine. It's not just all over the Bible, it's an important doctrine. So here let me just tell you this is a one-point sermon. Now it's going to have multiple applications, but it's one point. Let me just go ahead for no extra charge and tell you what the one point is so you can write it down because I'm just going to be Trying to prove it over and over from the Bible. Here's the one point Jesus is the king whom God promised to David would build his temple. Jesus is the king who God promised to David would build his temple. And we are that temple. Jesus is the king who God promised to David would build his temple. And we are that temple. If you just turn in, my, in your Bibles real quick to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, I, w- I want to show you something that God said to David. Uh, beginning in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7 Verse 12 When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. And the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, your throne shall be established forever. Early Christians believed that this passage was one of the most important passages in the Old Testament speaking about Jesus, and they were right. Early Christians were right about that. I'm going to, I want to, I want to demonstrate that to you from the scriptures themselves. But I want you to see at the beginning, there's this promise from God to David that he is going to raise up his son, and his son is going to build a house or a temple for God, and his son's kingdom is going to last forever. And early Christians, and you see this all over the New Testament, believe that that passage, that prophecy, is about Jesus. Matthew speaks about it. Uh, Peter preaches about it in Acts chapter 2. You'll find it all over the New Testament. But let's take it all the way back to the beginning of the Bible because the idea of God as king and the idea of Jesus as the king we have been waiting for has origins that start in the very first Uh, chapter of the Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 3 and verse 31, just for example, and notice how God creates the world by doing what? By speaking. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And and over and over, that's how God creates. He creates by fiat, by speaking. Just like a, a king gets to say, I declare that today is a holiday. Kings get to do that. they get to say stuff, and it is so uh, i 'm a chancellor i 'm a chancellor of a theological seminary, even i can 't do that when, when, when we were when we were trying to work out some some new holidays for the seminary. I had to propose that. It had to go to the executive committee. The executive committee had to debate that. They had to recommend it to the board, and then the board had to vote on it, and then it was so that we had cert- such and such holidays for the seminary. I don't get to do that. Kings get to declare holidays. Well, God is so kingly that he speaks the world into being. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh This is a picture of God as the sovereign creator king. By the way, we sing about this too. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. So Genesis 1 is picturing God as an all-powerful king who speaks the world into being. And if you have seen any of the images coming back from the James Webb telescope camera shooting pictures into deep space of this massive universe. Think how sovereign God must be to speak this massive universe into being. So from the very beginning of the Bible, God is pictured as a sovereign king. And then in Genesis 17, if you look at verses 6 and 16, and then in Genesis 35, verses, uh, verse 11, Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob are all promised that kings will come from them. God explicitly promises to Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob. Isn't it beautiful that God promises that to Sarah? Not just to Abraham, but to Sarah and to Jacob. Jacob that kings will come from them. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, rules are given by Moses about what the kings are supposed to do when they come into the land. Chief amongst those rules are what is what? They have to write the law for themselves. So they have to have their own handwritten copy of the Bible themselves. They have to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy themselves by hand in the presence of the priest. Why? Because they are supposed to rule in accordance with God's word. And so to make sure that they know God's word, they have to write their own copy of God's word in the presence of the priest to make sure that they get it right. Uh, And it's, it's a picture of how God's word is above even the king in Israel. The king doesn't rule by whatever he jolly well pleases or wants to do. He has to rule in accordance with God's word. Then, of course, you know in 2 Samuel 5, David is chosen by God to be the king over Israel and to shepherd them. And then in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 17, this wonderful promise is given to David that he will have a son who will be king, and God will be his father, and he will be God's son. Um, the only individual in the Old Testament who is called the son of God is the son of David, who is spoken of here in 2 Samuel 7. Israel collectively is called the son of God, right? When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says let my people go, let my son go. Israel is my son, let my son go. So the people of God collectively in the Old Testament are called the Son of God. The point is, you're God's children. You're you're his family. You're his heirs. You're his offspring. But only this person is called the Son of God individually in the Old Testament. This son of David is the son of God. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That's easier to find than some of these other passages. Matthew 1, verse 1, it's the very first verse of the New Testament. And what does it say? This is the book of the genealogy, or this is the book of the generations, however you want to translate it, of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus who is the Messiah, the Anointed One, What's the first thing that's said about him son of David. Do you see what Matthew is doing? Matthew is saying, this Jesus about whom I'm going to write in this gospel is the one that God was talking about back in 2 Samuel 7. This is the one that God was talking about. He's son of David, and then very interestingly, he also said he's son of Abraham. So he is the son of promise about whom God was speaking in 2 Samuel 7, and over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew drives this home. Let me just give you two examples. If you turn to Matthew chapter 2, what's the very first story in Matthew chapter 2? It's of the, of the magi journeying to Jerusalem, following the star, and they get to Jerusalem, and they say to everybody, the, the king and the priests and the leaders Hey, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, is it, this, is, this is awesome. Pagans from the east, probably astrologer magicians. That, that's, that's our best shot at what a magi is astrologer magicians from the east show up in Jerusalem wanting to worship the king of the Jews. How's that? I mean, what's Matthew telling you? Who is this that's in the manger? Who is this who has been born to Mary and Joseph? It's the king of the Jews. The king has been born to them. The very next chapter, Matthew chapter 3, is the baptism of Jesus. And what does God say out loud at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So God verbally and audibly announces Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that I promised to David. So Jesus is the King that we have been waiting for. That's... that's That's sort of the first part of my one sentence, one point, Jesus is the king whom God promised to David. Now the second part of that phrase is who would build his temple. So let's break that into two pieces. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the temple and he's greater than the temple. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the temple and he's greater than the temple. Let me give you just a a couple of passages to think about. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus, you know, the, he and his disciples are at the temple Mount in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews say, It's taken 46 years to build the temple. Are you going to raise it up in three days? And then John parenthetically says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus said. Had spoken. Jesus is the temple. Uh, if, if you look at John 4, he makes it clear when he's talking, you know, the, the woman at the well says, Now, hey, where's the right place to worship Jesus? Is it up here in Samaria? Uh, or is it where the Jews say at the temple in Jerusalem? And part of Jesus' answer to that is, I, I tell you, that a day is coming when it's neither going to be here nor in Jerusalem. It's going to be in and through me, wherever you are, in and through me, because God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and through. I am the way to God. He'll say, of course, later in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, so it's, Jesus is going to be the temple by which we come to God. It's a big theme in John, and of course, John picks up on it again in Revelation twenty one. Turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation twenty one, verse twelve. John's describing the New Jerusalem. So in the in the passage that was read this morning from John uh, from uh, from Jeremiah thirty one, you know that you had that beautiful description of how large the New Jerusalem is going to be, right, after the restoration. You know, do you remember that the, sort of the part at the end? Why is, why is Jeremiah going on and on and on about what the borders are going to be? Well, John also sees the New Jerusalem. Interestingly, it comes down from heaven. And he describes it in Revelation 21. But in Revelation 21, 22, he, he, he said it's, it's like he's... Have you ever... Have you ever not been able to see something, but somebody can see it and they're describing it to you? Okay, well, this, is, this is what Revelation is like. You can't see what John is seeing, but John's describing it to you. Okay, So he's, he's seeing the new heavens and the new earth, and he sees the new Jerusalem come down, and he says, wait, 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 wait. I see no temple in the city. I see the new Jerusalem, but there's no temple in it. And then he says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Doesn't need a temple, because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus is the temple. Okay, so that's sort of the second part. Jesus is going to build the temple. Turns out that he is the temple, but it is also true that Jesus the King came to build the temple, and you are the temple he came to build. Uh, Every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper as a congregation, one of the things that the pastor reads, uh, very often from 1 Corinthians 11 or maybe from Luke 22 or Matthew 26 or Mark 14, will 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 say will remind you that you are part of the body of Christ. He's the head, we are the body. So if he's the temple and we're united to him, guess what that means? We're the temple. And this is emphasized in various ways in the Bible. You know, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul will say, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Now, Paul talks about this extensively in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, go ahead and take a look there. And this, This picks up on a theme you've already heard, both in the prayer and in just one of the sort of the offhand remarks about what happens when we gather on the Lord's Day. We're not all here because we're all the same. We're here that though we are different and we come from different backgrounds, those of us who are believers are here because we've been united savingly to Jesus Christ. And Paul's talking about that reality in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is that not amazing? Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple, and you're the temple he came to build. Not a physical temple, but a living temple made up of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, united to the Savior and thus united to one another in the building, the family, the body he came to create and so the church is one foundation which which we 've already meditated on today that's that 's picking up on that theme. The church is one foundation is Jesus. Christ our Lord. And Peter meditates on this, doesn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and 9 and 10, he says, you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By the mercy of Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, we who were once aliens and strangers have been brought in, united to Christ, made his people, and we are being built up in the spiritual house, the spiritual temple that he came to build. Jesus is the king who God promised to David would build his temple, and we are that temple. Now, uh, I'm a Presbyterian, and we have a, we have a catechism called the Shorter Catechism that almost everybody memorizes. There's a larger catechism that our pastors also study. And in that catechism, which is a summary of uh, biblical answers to a series of questions on important Bible topics, it asks this question in question 45 of the larger catechism, how does Christ execute the office of a king? So how, 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 does go, how does Christ go about executing this office of the king? And it answers this way. Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, which you confessed this morning in your confession of faith, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and who obey not his gospel. Now, as I look at that answer, and there there are copious scripture references at the bottom, I, I see six things that he says that Jesus does in executing his office of the king. Um, He governs us by his word. He bestows his saving grace on us. He disciplines us for our good. He preserves us in our temptations and our sufferings. He protects us from our enemies. and in His providence, he orders all things for our good. At least those six things are, are marked out. And I just want to reflect on those with you for just a moment before we close. He governs us by His word. Uh, Jesus executes His office of king. By governing us, his people, by his word. Just as God created the world by his word, he rules his people by his word. Um, In the Old Testament, good prophets were prophets who did what? They spoke only the words that the Lord had put into their mouths. Bad prophets spoke according to what? The thoughts of and the imaginations of their own minds. They made it up as they went along. Good prophets spoke only according to the word. God rules his people according to the word. One of the ways that King Jesus exercises his kingship over us is our lives are governed by his word. You know, I I prayed this morning from that beautiful passage in, uh, in the Gospel of John, sanctify them with truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. He rules us with his truth. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word rules our lives. That's one way that Jesus exercises his kingship over us. He bestows his saving grace upon us. That's another way that Jesus shows his kingship because he's a merciful and a gracious king. You know, And that's really good news because every single one of us, every single one of us in this room knows what it is to be a sinner in the sight of God. You know, I, I, if you're not a believer and you're here today, I, I know that Raymond and the and the church family are so glad that you're here. Uh, I want you to know this: we don't think we're better than you. Um, it, it, in my church, um, everybody that becomes a member has to take five vows, and the very first vow is, "Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without hope?" save in his sovereign mercy. And I, 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 I like to tell people that means that we don't allow good people to join our church. Good, good, good people are not allowed, only sinners. But here's the good news. Christ came for sinners. Christ died for sinners. Christ will never go, oh, Sinners, I am shocked. I had no idea. He came for sinners. Sinners he's not surprised about your sin. That's why he came. He came to give himself as a ransom for sin, to set you free from the judgment and condemnation of sin, to bear your punishment for sin, and open wide his arms and welcome you, as you rest and trust in him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, into his kingdom, into his family, into his church, into his temple. That's what he came for. He is a gracious king. And he exercises his kingship that way. I'll never forget hearing Doug Kelly preach about Psalm 2. And Psalm 2, of course, is about God establishing the kingship of the Messiah. And over against the, you know, why do the nations rage? You know, they're raging against God. They're raging against his kingship. And the, the picture of, of God is, is laughing them to scorn and establishing uh, his, his rule over them and making them his footstool. And if you remember at the end of Psalm 2, there's this little phrase, kiss the son lest he be angry. And, the, and, and that's not a polite little kiss on the cheek. Uh, that that's actually prostrating yourself and kissing the feet of the king. You know that's that's doing homage to the sovereign. Kiss the feet. And and Dr. Doug Kelly was preaching on that passage. He said, you know, when you when you bow your when you bow your knees to kiss King Jesus' feet, you notice that there are nail prints there. Because this King who is sovereign, he is sovereign indeed laid down his life for your sins. And when you kiss his feet, you see the nail prints. They're there for you. He's a king of grace. He's a king of grace. And he executes his kingship through his grace. Third, he disciplines us. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is that he disciplines us, rewarding our obedience, disciplining us for our sins, for our own everlasting good. It's a, it's a good thing to be disciplined by the Lord. It's hard sometimes. I remember a friend of mine giving his testimony before the elders, before he was ordained, and he said, I was reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but mostly the admonition. <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the the Lord had to do a lot of admonishing of him, a lot of disciplining of him uh in in his younger days, but it was a, it was a, he would say today it was a mercy it was a mercy that the Lord disciplined me in my sins, lest I go astray that 's one of the ways that Jesus exercises his kingship over us. He protects us from our enemies that 's just like my Friend Fikret, who I was talking about, that Turkish pastor, he he was protected, the Lord protected him from his enemies. And I could tell you many, many stories of friends in Christ who are faithfully ministering the gospel in dangerous places who can speak over and over about the Lord's protection. But how often has the Lord's protection been in our lives? How often? And sometimes when we don't even realize it, sometimes it's after the fact we realize Lord, I didn't realize how close a call that was. You, you protected me. The Lord is providential in his protection over us. And then sixth and finally, he, he executes the office of the king by ordering everything for his glory and our good. That's an amazing thing. He exercises everything for his glory and our good. I'm so thankful I am not sovereign in my life. And let me say, I'm also so thankful that I'm not sovereign over your lives. Um, This summer, on July the 12th, um, I had to put down the family dogs. Uh, They were 15 years old, and both of them were facing disease and illness that they were not going to recover from. They had been in pain. I didn't want them to remain in pain. One of them had ceased to be able to walk, and it was we had had those dogs for 15 years, and I wanted to make that decision on my own because I didn't want my wife to have to make that decision because that, the, 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 the big dog, he loved her like his own mother, and, and I was definitely second on the list in the family uh, to that dog and, uh, in, in my wife's heart. And mind, and I, I wanted to make that decision on my, <laughs> on my own, and um, and I, because I, I didn't want her to have to say I had to make the choice to put the dog down. But it was a terrible decision to have to make. You know, it's it's hard, it's hard to have to part with a beloved family pet that's been in your lives. I'd i prayed two things to the Lord: one, that the dogs would live old enough that that my kids would graduate from college, and two, that I would be at home when the time came, so that I could be there with them and we would do that. But I, thinking about that made me so thankful that I do not have that right or power when it comes to human beings. Only, only God has that power. Only King Jesus has that power. Raymond knows this. This morning, somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m., my mother died. And uh, my brothers and I have been trying to care for her. We've known this was coming. She's Gone from ER to ICU to rehab to hospice care. I'm so thankful that we do not have the terrible right to decide when a human being comes home. Uh, We we just had to do the best we can and accept that uh, that the Lord's time would be perfect, and He chose to bring her home this morning early on the Lord's day. And uh, Raymond, she like Raymond, she's a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. She studied church music there and served in Baptist churches and at a, a university teaching church music her whole life, church, served as a choir director uh, at, at our, our church. She loved the Lord's day. Couldn't have been a better day for her to go home to see uh, her Lord and Savior. And she, and, and through her illness, she, she was trusting Christ very evidently, and she was a sweet, sweet patient. I'll tell you something funny, Raymond, and I, I've only told Al Moeller and Mark Dever this, my, my mother was born and reared Southern Baptist, and for the first thirty years of her life, that's where she served. But she married a Presbyterian, and eventually she succumbed. And so the the <laughs> last the last fifty nine the last fifty nine years she's been a Presbyterian. But when the when the hospice uh, the head of the hospice came to visit her, he said in the course of the conversation, he said, "Now Shirley, uh, what what is your religion?" And she said, "I'm a Baptist." And I, 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 I sent Al Mohler and Mark Dever a note, and I said, 59 years of Presbyterianism, whoosh, down the drain, right there, right, right, right there, right there. Um, um, you can take the girl out of the Baptist church, but you can't take the Baptist out of the girl, let me tell you. Um, but a, a wonderful and godly mother that was always pointing us to the Savior, um, uh, you know, I, I had no choice but to sing as a boy, as the, as the son of the choir director, uh, and, and she put a song in my mouth of praise to God, and uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, I have a song in my heart of praise to God. But I'm so thankful, I, did not ha- I didn't have the right to decide when my mother went home, only Jesus did, and he knew the, he knew the perfect time. Uh, the Lord Jesus exercises his kingship over us in working all things for our good and his glory. Don't you want a king like that? Don't you want a king like that? If you don't know that king today, you can. You can. You can do it right now. You can bow your head right now and, and you can say, I've, I've been a rebel in sin against you. I've run away from your, your loving rule, but I confess my sins, and I, I trust you. I, I put my whole life in your hands, my, my eternal destiny in your hands, Jesus. Would you accept me and receive me as I rest and trust on you as you are offered in the gospel and pardon my sins and accept me as righteous for your sake? Make me your child. Welcome me into your family. Make me your temple. And he will. He will. If you trust him. He will. I promise you he will. If you want to talk to the pastor, I know the pastor and the elders and others would love to talk with you about that today. They can talk to you about it. You can have that king for your king. You know, I think all of us have, have just marveled in these last days as, as we've watched the death of Queen Elizabeth. She was she was so beloved. She was so beloved, and, and by all accounts, a believing woman, a woman who trusted in Christ. You heard the statement she made a number of years ago. She said, I can't wait to put my crown at the feet of the king. Isn't that beautiful? She couldn't wait for the day. Now, she's had that day to put her crown at the feet of the king. You can have that same king for your own if you'll trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would work its truth deep into our hearts and that we would trust in Jesus, our King, who is the King that you've been telling us in the Bible that would come and who came and who laid down his life for our sins and one day again will come and live and reign forever. We pray in his name, Jesus, amen.